Hebrews 12:25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warned us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. All right, before we dig into our text this morning, I want to just uh, throw my pastoral punch behind uh, the announcement that Carolyn gave us earlier about the block party on Saturday. And not only will it be a great time, but as we think about things that we can do together as a church family, we try to think of things that we'd like to do together. But also with the block party, we try to think of things that would be fun for you to invite your friends or neighbors to. And so as you think about uh, Saturday and you're checking your schedule and making sure you can be there, let me encourage you also to send a note or call or something to a friend or a neighbor uh, here in the area and have them come along and join uh, you also on Saturday. I'm going to be sending an email, a reminder this week, uh, inviting you all. But it'll be very simple for you to take that email and just forward it on uh, to some folks and invite them. Uh, at my block, we have a, a block email distribution list. And so I'll just send that to my block. Maybe that's something that you have on your block. But I encourage you to take the opportunity to not just come and have fun yourself, but also introduce people to our church family, to our church, and ultimately the prayer is introducing them to Jesus Christ and the hope that's found in him. So be prayerful and mindful of that uh, for this Saturday. All right. So we are nearing the end of our Hebrews series, Steady On, Finding Strength in the Book of Hebrews. The plan is to be done by September 15th. Last week's sermon uh, was about two mountains. This week's sermon is about two kingdoms. Today's sermon, in many ways, is kind of a part two or a continuation or extension of the passage that we looked at last week. But you say, I wasn't here last week. I grieve for you. <laughs> but that's why we put the sermons online. So you can go back and you can listen to the sermon uh, from last week if you missed it online. In any case, we want to do our best to understand this passage, the text that's before us, see if we can get into the mind of the author and understand his logic. And here in this text, we're going to see that the author is not primarily concerned, as he was last week, to just convey the greatness of Jesus over and against Moses. He's going to reach for more than that. He's going to make a bolder and more ambitious claim. He introduces two kingdoms, and he insists that Jesus' eternal kingdom is greater than any other earthly finite kingdom. All of us are investing in a kingdom in some way, metaphorically conceived, more likely a series of kingdoms, whether we consciously think of them as kingdoms or not. But we cast our lot with particular sets of powers, 
that we're banking on to keep us safe and to keep our goods safe, however we conceive of those goods. Maybe we're thinking of our material goods or we're thinking of our relational goods or our social goods or our spiritual goods or emotional goods. Our passage today exhorts us to cast our lot with the one true eternal kingdom that can never be shaken. So let me encourage you to lay aside whatever distractions you brought with you into the service this morning and to fix your attention on this question. What kingdom am I living for? Perhaps maybe even more sharply stated, what kingdom am I depending upon? We're going to explore what this text has to say about these two kingdoms, and then I'm going to draw out two points of application that relate to us as we consider what kingdom we're living in. All right, so jumping into our text, uh, verse 25, our passage starts with the author's final warning. If you've been with us through the series through Hebrews, you know that there's been a number of warning passages throughout Hebrews, uh, some rather developed and filled out. And this is really the author's final warning as he closes his letter. It's actually the same basic warning that he gave to start his very first warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In chapter 2, he posed the warning in a form of a question, basically saying this, if we summarize chapter 2, 1 through 3, if those who rejected Moses did not escape, how much or how will we escape if we ignore an even greater salvation? If those who rejected Moses, the lesser prophet, did not escape divine judgment, then how will we escape if we ignore the even greater salvation offered to us through Jesus, the Son of God? Here in chapter 12, the author takes the same basic question. I mean, this has been the point he's been making throughout the entire letter. Takes that same basic question, but this time he doesn't put it in the form of a question. He answers it for us. And the short answer is, we won't escape. Look what he says in verse 25. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The book of Exodus tells the story of how the people that God redeemed from Egypt went on to rebel against him, faithless disobedience in the wilderness. And how over the course of 40 years, their bodies were strewn about the desert. And not one of them entered into the promised land. So the author is looking to that example and is basically saying to his readers, if those who rebelled against God at Mount Sinai in the wilderness did not escape divine judgment, that much less will we escape divine judgment if we rebel against God at Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. <clears throat> If spurning the lesser covenant of Moses came with dire and ultimate consequences, how much worse will those consequences be if we spurn the greater covenant of the Son of God? Now, I've spent time in past, servants, uh, in past sermons rather, on these warning passages, two in particular uh, sermons, so I don't want to linger over the same theme again here, but 
If you're interested in the warning passages and how the warnings in the scripture or Hebrews relate to eternal security, maybe that's some questions you have, some theologically you want to put that together, I encourage you to go back and you listen uh, to those two sermons. One, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, and then the sermon on Hebrews 10, 23 through 29. I encourage you to go back and listen uh, to those sermons if you have some questions. But moving on to verses 26 through 28, the author unpacks for us the reason for why we should stick it out with Jesus. And here's where I want to focus our attention. He remarks, look, he remarks in verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth. Now, what time was he referring, at that time, he's thinking back to some time, what time was that? Well, if you were here last week, you know that he's referring to the time that God came down on Mount Sinai, which he was just talking about a few verses before. We looked last week at Exodus 19 that when the Lord descended into his people in the wilderness, in the Arabian wilderness, he came upon the mountain, that God's presence shook the earth. But here the author asserts that in the future, the Lord is once again going to shake the earth. He's going to come again, and he's going to again shake the earth. But not just the earth, he's going to shake also the heavens, which is a way of saying he's going to shake the whole of creation. When God came down upon Sinai in the Arabian wilderness, he shook that mountain and the ground around it. But when he comes the second time, when his presence is unveiled upon the world and all that he has made, he will shake the earth to its very foundations, to its core. And he will shake the heavens all the way out to the furthest galaxy. The author is referring to that great day of the Lord when God will fully and finally unveil himself to his creation. And then in verse 27, the author distinguishes between two types of reality that will exist when God comes to shake creation. Two types of realities. He refers to the things that can't be shaken, and then he refers to the things that can be shaken. Look in verse 27, what it says. This phrase, yet once more, referring to this second coming of God, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. So there's two kinds of things. There are the things that, that can be shaken. Those are the things that have been made. And there's the things that can't be shaken. What does he mean when he says, the things that have been made? These are the things that can be shaken. It's the things that have been made. If we think about it, I mean, God has made everything. Everything's been made. So does that mean everything's going to be shaken? But if everything's going to be shaken, then how can there be things that aren't shaken? Right, so what does he mean by these things that have been made? Well, I did a little bit of study on this. I wasn't certain myself. And so as I dug into studying this text, uh, some of the study aids pointed me back to the second chapter of Haggai. It's a prophet in the Old Testament, the third to last prophet in the book in the Old Testament, Haggai uh, chapter 2. And uh, the readers of Hebrews who were devout Jewish uh, people, would have been aware of the connection back to Haggai when the author was making these reference to the shaking of the heavens and the earth and to the things that have been made. I suspect, though, that many of you were like me and you 
perhaps didn't connect, make the connection to Haggai chapter 2. Some of you, no doubt, were quite aware of it, and while the scripture was being read, you'd be like, ooh, echoes of Haggai chapter 2 there in <laughs> Hebrews 12. I, I get that, which is good for you. But for the rest of us, we didn't know it. So I want to go back to Haggai chapter 2, which the author is, is working from, get our bearings in there so that we can read Hebrews 12 through the lens and listen with the ears that the original readers of Hebrews would have had. So make your way back to Haggai chapter 2. Just go back to the Old Testament. Haggai is only two chapters long, so it's at the very end of the Old Testament, or just about the very end. And uh, if you're thumbing through and you go too fast, you're going to skip it because it's only two chapters. It's page 791 in your pew Bible, Haggai chapter 2. While you're making your way there, let me just give you a little bit of context for Haggai because you may not be familiar with this uh, small minor prophet. Israel rebelled in the wilderness. They continued to rebel all throughout their history. It got so bad that eventually the Lord brought destruction upon Jerusalem and upon the people and uh, drove them from the land. And they were taken in captivity out of the land where they dwelt for 70 years, a 70-year timeout, as it were. And then the Lord brought a remnant back into the land to rebuild the temple, which was in ruins, and to rebuild uh, the city walls, which were also in ruin. And so Haggai is situated after the remnant has come back to the land, and they are rebuilding uh, what was destroyed by the foreign powers. And things are better because they're no longer living in captivity and exile, but things just aren't the glory that they were before Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. The temple was being rebuilt in Haggai's day, but it was still in disrepair, and it was just a shadow of the splendor that it had had when it was built by Solomon in the glory days of the Davidic dynasty. So in the midst of this tenuous situation, God sends a word of encouragement through the prophet Haggai, right? And that's where we want to pick up in 2, verse 3. So chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord sends this word through Haggai to the people who are the remnant rebuilding the temple. He says in verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Okay, now listen. Here's where the connection comes. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In that place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On that great and dreadful, dreadful day of the Lord that Haggai points towards, through the word of the Lord, when the Lord will come again to shake again the heaven and the earth. The Lord will descend upon his people and he will shake the nations that have been oppressing Israel and all the wealth of the nations will flow into the temple. This is the ultimate shakedown 
I picture God kind of grabbing the, the nations by their ankles, shaking them upside down, right, till all the change, silver and gold, falls out of their pockets and into the coffers of the temple. But God isn't going to just shake down the nations. He's going to shake them down to the ground. Haggai gets a second vision, a second oracle. So turn over to the end of Haggai in chapter 2, verse 20. A second vision comes. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And their horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them, by the sword of his brother. God's coming will destroy the earthly powers and overthrow the thrones and the kingdoms of the world. Particularly in mind are those powers and thrones and kingdoms, those nations that have set themselves against God's people. This was the great hope of Israel, prophesied all throughout the Old Testament prophets, that their God would one day come again and shake the heavens and the earth and act on their behalf, that he would step in and deliver them from the oppressive powers arrayed against them. So the Jewish prophets Haggai, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all foretold that this day, this great day of shaking of the heaven and earth would come and God's people would be saved. And now the author of Hebrews, returning back into our text, so you can turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, but the author of our Hebrews stands in this same prophetic tradition and likewise asserts that this great day of shaking is going to come. So given the Haggai context the author is drawing from, when the author of Hebrews tells us that God will one day shake earth and heaven so that, quote, the things that have been made will be removed, he is referring to the kingdoms that have been made by powers other than God. He's not referring to all things that have been made or things that have been made by God. He's referring to the powers, the thrones, the kingdoms that have been made by other powers than God himself, finite and temporal kingdoms. The author's point here in Hebrews 12 is that all earthly powers and thrones, and even the false heavenly powers and thrones, will fall. The whole middle section of Revelation from chapters 4 to chapters 20, the bulk of the book of Revelation is a prophetic and graphic telling of that last and fateful day when God comes to shake the heavens and the earth. When the whole earth shakes and the stars fall from the sky and the earthly kingdoms are beaten down and the kings of the world flee in terror to their caves and the dragon and his angels are cast into the smoking fires of hell. Then in verse 12, 29, the author concludes the chapter by telling us, reminding us that God is a consuming fire. As we noted last week, all 
earthly power, all earthly things really, are combustible in the divine presence. On that great and dreadful day, only that which cannot be burned will remain. Only that which cannot be shaken will stand. Only that which is of God and allied with God and made ready to dwell with God will remain on that final day. The kingdom of which Jesus is the great priest and king, the kingdom that we have received graciously from God, the author tells us, that is the kingdom that will never be shaken. So two points, then, of application about how we are to live our lives as we consider the kingdom that we are living in. First point of application. Choose your kingdom wisely. What kingdom have you allied yourself with? What kingdom are you hoping in? What or who do you look to for a sense of security, a sense of purpose, a sense of place, a sense of identity? Could it be that you've hitched your horse to a crumbling wagon? Or is the saying, have you hitched your wagon to a dying horse? I'm actually not sure. Maybe your wagon is crumbling and your horse is dying, which is doubly bad. Either way, the question is worth reflecting on. What do you depend upon to protect you and your interests? What powers in your life do you seek to be on good terms with? You can know what kingdom you depend upon because when you get on the wrong side of this kingdom or when the kingdom disappoints you in some way, you get anxious or angry or depressed or you seek unhealthy ways of medicating and numbing your pain. So your husband doesn't give you the attention you desire and so you're bitter and caustic in your domestic interactions. Your parents are never satisfied, no matter how hard you try, and so you just check out and you medicate on your phone alone in your room. Your boss is capricious and impossible to please, and so you've become a workaholic in an effort to satisfy her. Your government disappoints you, and so you find yourself posting angry and obsessive comments online that only serve to alienate you from your friends and your family. Your children won't respect you or obey you, and so you retaliate with vitriolic rebukes and over-the-top anger. You've cast your eggs, your hope, into a particular kingdom basket. And when the basket gets upset, you get upset. Some of you, maybe you think you can do an end around all of this. You don't like getting anxious or angry or depressed. You don't like feeling vulnerable to the powers around you, capricious as they are. And so you've just checked out emotionally from life. You've shut off your sense of need and vulnerability. You live like a shell with no egg on the inside. 
You are cauterized from the pain and disappointments of life. But you are also cauterized from the joy and the beauty of life. And that's no way to live. And I'm not talking here, when you're trying to identify your kingdom that you've allied yourself with, I'm not just talking about occasional episodes or frustrations. All of us have occasional fights with our spouses or get frustrated at work or we snap at our children. Not talking about that. You could snap at your children and not have your children be your kingdom. You could have a fight with your wife and not have your wife be your kingdom. But let me press the questions a little deeper. Does your work frustration frustrate your whole life? Does your disappointing marriage make your whole life disappointing? Does your children's failure to conform make you feel like your whole life is a failure? If your life is characterized by anger or bitterness or depression or emotional withdrawal, perhaps it's because you've chosen to put your hope in the wrong kingdom. Our text today reminds us that our kingdom of choice, to the extent that it's an earthly kingdom, will one day fall. And even now, the tremors that portend and forecast to its ultimate demise can be felt in the foundations. Perhaps you're feeling the, the tremors of the coming earthquake, of the collapse of the kingdom that you have put your hope in. Take it as a mercy from the Lord that your earthly kingdom is letting you down. May not seem like a mercy, but receive the disappointments in your earthly kingdom as a mercy from God to remind you that your hope is misplaced. Let the frustrations of your marriage or work or children or government cause you to direct your hope to Christ to his eternal and unfailing kingdom. Maybe you need to stop praying that God would prop up your failing earthly kingdom. How many of us do this? We've got our hope in the wrong kingdom, and things just aren't working out. We've placed our hope in our marriage or our children or our work or our social standing, and it's just not working out. And so we pray, God, fix my marriage, my work, my social standing. But really just praying for God to prop up a kingdom that ultimately he's going to tear down. It's the wrong kingdom. And maybe he's not going to step in and prop up your wrong kingdom because he's trying to get your gaze to look away from that wrong kingdom that's going to ultimately fall one day to his eternal, unshakable kingdom. Maybe what you really need to do is pray that God would forgive you for putting your hope in a finite kingdom made by lesser human hands instead of the eternal kingdom made by his greater divine hands. Sir Philip Sidney was a poet in the 1500s, and he wrote a poem. As they all did, they gave Latin titles to their poems, Splendidus Lognum Validice Nugis, which means, roughly translated, I bid a long farewell to splendid trifles. Listen to the, the opening lines of his poem. Leave me, O love, which reaches but to dust, and thou, my mind, aspire 
to higher things. Grow rich in that which never taketh rust. And then this is the line that caught my attention. Listen to this. Whatever fades, but fading pleasure brings. Whatever fades, but fading pleasure brings. Christ's kingdom is eternal, unwavering, and unfading. It brings eternal, unfading pleasure. It will not ultimately fail you. No matter how dark the night gets, no matter how strong the storm rages, when the floodwaters rise, Jesus taught us at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, when the floodwaters rise in that final day and the divine current sweeps against the foundations of all the houses that have been built by finite powers, only the house that is Jesus Christ will stand on that day. So choose your kingdom wisely. Repent if necessary and place your hopes in him. And then close with this final point of application. Hold your earthly kingdom loosely. Choosing to live for Christ and his kingdom does not mean that we no longer need to consider the earthly kingdom that we live in. We're creatures of earth. We cannot help but live in earthly kingdoms. We have families. We have jobs. We have neighborhoods. We have governments. Right, we all live in earthly kingdoms. Some earthly kingdoms are better than others. Some are worse than others. Some of us, through no choice of our own, live in totalitarian and abusive contexts. But for others of us, our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, our work, they're all pretty decent. Not perfect, but when we kind of step back and compare ourselves to the world around us, we're like, yeah, we're doing pretty good. Either way, whether we find ourselves in a good earthly kingdom or a bad earthly kingdom, the Lord would have us remember this morning that all of these earthly kingdoms, both the good kingdoms and the bad kingdoms, will one day fall and be replaced by the one true, eternal, perfect kingdom of Christ. So we should not despair if our earthly kingdom is bad because we can rest assured that it too will one day fall. We should not have false hope if our earthly kingdom is good because we can rest assured that it too will one day fall. In many ways, though, it's harder to repent of our misplaced hope in a good earthly kingdom than it is to repent of misplaced despair in a bad earthly kingdom. Let me say that again because I want you to really lay hold of that. It can be harder to repent of our misplaced hope in a good earthly kingdom than it is to repent of misplaced despair in a bad earthly kingdom. In a basically good earthly kingdom, we feel no need. We have no acute sense of dissatisfaction to to make us lift our eyes beyond our kingdom to look for alternatives because it all works pretty well for us. We place our hope in our spouse and they are doting and attentive. We place our security in our parents and they provide for us and don't disappoint us. We depend upon our boss and they reward us appropriately. We live vicariously through our children and they obey all of our rules. I know... 
it's, it, that's not actually true. That's an, an illustration that never actually happens. But in any case, <laughs> it can be so easy to keep our hope fixed on finite earthly things when those things are working pretty well, well enough, mostly well. But to be aware of our need is our greatest need. I think this is why Jesus said in the Gospels that it was so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's so easy for the rich of this world to be unaware of their deepest needs, to be unaware of the frailty of the earthly kingdoms that they are trusting in. How easy it is to be blind to our need when the earthly world around us seems to be working pretty well. It's easy to act like we are people of faith when all of our earthly kingdoms are functioning reasonably well. But let one of them begin to crumble and begin to totter and collapse and fall, and then the truth will out. Those of us who live in relatively happy earthly kingdoms need to work just as hard at hoping in Jesus as those of us who live in unhappy earthly kingdoms. Perhaps we even need to work harder at it. The key is to live like the Apostle John taught us, to be in the world, to be in our earthly kingdoms, but not of the world, not of our earthly kingdoms. To live in these shakable earthly kingdoms, but to place our hope in the unshakable coming kingdom of Jesus. Every kingdom apart from Christ will indeed fall. So choose your kingdom wisely with the end in view and hold your earthly kingdom that you do live in loosely. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did not Leave us to our shakable earthly kingdoms. However well we might be able to prop ourselves up with these tottering edifices, Lord, we know that ultimately all of these earthly powers, all of these earthly thrones, all of these earthly dominions will one day fall. And we don't want to have our hope put in those. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and his kingdom. Help us look to Jesus regularly and daily to lift our eyes above our earthly kingdoms to the eternal coming kingdom and to put our hope there. God, forgive us for the times that we have allowed our hope to be misplaced in earthly things. God, thank you for the ways that you have even orchestrated the, the tremors and the earthquakes that signal the ultimate demise of these earthly kingdoms to turn our gaze back to you. Help us to cling to you, Lord, to cling to your son, to receive your kingdom with gratitude, with reverence, with joy, to remember that you are the consuming fire who is the deliverer of all who put their hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.